0: Hello, Richard.
1: Hello, come on in. You're right with dogs, aren't you? Yeah. you
0: yeah,
1: do? yeah, I'm fine you with dogs. Here they come, yeah, you're ready. Sit, sit, sit. <laughs> Alexa, off. Alexa, and they want not put an answer to Radio 3 and not Radio 4. Off. Oh. <laughs> Shall oh, I play this station, three,
0: not radio four? Alexa. Off. No, even Alexa doesn't listen to you,
1: Richard. Alexa <laughs> never does. She Alexa. Off. <coughs> dogs. <coughs> oh, that's
0: so shut up in a minute. You've only got the two dogs now. How's yeah, that? Two.
1: Well, I just couldn't look after five on my own, and after David died, it was it was just impossible. I mean, there's so much kind of clearing up when somebody dies, but the toughest thing to clear up was dog ownership. But fortunately, his mum and dad took Audrey, his brother took H, and our dentist took general Guster. So all three are rehomed. I've seen all three since they've gone, and they're all settled nicely into their new homes. So and I left the oldsters here, so Daisy is nearly twelve and. Pongo is nearly 10. So, why did you keep these two? It was just because of their the age? The oldest ones, yeah. Yeah, And also, oh God, it was sort of like a sort of domestic pet version of Sophie's choice, actually deciding which go and which stay, but it had to be done. Most tough yeah. things you have to decide in life, you decide because you simply have to decide them, yeah. you know. So, it's yeah. just one of the things that had to be done. You've had a lot of hard decisions to make, but
0: uh, yeah. that, that must have been a very very tough one.
1: So the hardest thing of all to see was Audrey's face, looking at the back of her car as it drives away, because Audrey is very kind of clingy. But fortunately, she's uh, you know they're dogs; they adapt. Indeed, indeed, humans do. Um, but they adapt. You know, if you give them enough comfort, food, and uh, opportunities to go out and bark at people. This is
0: the this is, this the, is the, the place. Yeah. yeah. I'm
1: just making some ribollita in there. It's called ribollita. it's a peasant dish. Oh, thanks. But <laughs> well, so it's, it's basically... You know, we have moved on. <laughs> so basically, you just chop up some celery, some carrots and some onion, fry it off, chuck in, uh, there's a handful of um, on in there as well, cannellini beans, tomatoes, mm. shredded cabbage or cavallonero, nero, but as soon as you're coming, you've got cabbage. Uh, and then you just stick stale bread in. So you've got a bit of stale bread hanging around, and you just stick that in at the end, and it's lovely. Would you say you're a good cook, Richard? You are. You did well on Chef, didn't I you? I like cooking. I'm a bad cook, often. I mean, I think on a good day I'm a good cook, on a bad day I'm a bad cook, but I really like cooking. Chef made me be a bit more ambitious. Yeah.
0: You did well on that, didn't you? I did, yeah. You did, all right. You did yeah. better than you
1: did on Strictly, let's say. Thank you for raising that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, uh... a... <laughs> I, I think a better cook than a dancer would be fair to say. Fair enough.
0: I got the impression from Twitter and everything that David was a very good cook.
1: Or is it? <laughs> well, he was an enthusiastic cook, but he made fundamental errors, which I used to raise from time to time. And he once hit me with that ladle. Do you see that ladle oh, there? Oh, big ladle, Because yeah. I was so keen to uh, talk about his fundamental errors. David, he did that thing that, he was younger than me. He was 15 years younger than me, okay. He was very good at some things. So, for example, taterash, parking, all the stuff he'd grown up with. His mother's a brilliant cook. So all that was good at. But then when he got a bit ho ho he ho he made the mistake of thinking you make things better by adding stuff. And you don't, actually. But he used to love to go, a little pinch of this, a little bit of that, ho 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 And uh, often you ended up with a sort of... I can't say it's so disrespectful to his memory. He'll be shrieking at me and haunting everything. But... Um, he sometimes overdid it, I think. And he got excited with weird ingredients once. I remember once we had some people around for supper. And he produced um, gefilte fish, which is a great comfort food to many Jewish people. Of when David grew up eating, keep him, he, kept, um, he grew up. From Jewish calendar, and he lived in All Jewish community. So gefilte fish for him is a treat but it's gefilte fish if you don't have a taste for it is not something which I think would make anyone's dinner party go with a zing. No disrespect to my Jewish friends.
0: So when you point out that ladle, was there a lot of violence in this kitchen. <laughs> there was uh,
1: there were frank exchanges of views sometimes. We did David was very different from me. I mean you yeah. knew you knew. Yeah. But uh, we, he was younger than me for a staff. But also we would just thought very differently about things. The things I liked so different from the things he liked. And we had very little in common, actually, apart from wanting to be with each other. Television. I like sport and guns. And David liked home improvements and ugly Betty, basically. So we had to do trade-offs. I had to give him two ugly Bettys for a match of the day. And we kind of worked it out that way. Not much in common, but the perfect couple, would you
0: say? I would have thought you were. We were solid.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, God, we, that we had our, our rouse like everybody else and our problems like everybody else, but we were solid. Yeah, there was never a moment when I thought that that would fail at all now. And I wasn't looking for it. and wasn't interested. And it just came out of the blue, and then it just happened. Are you glad it happened? Oh, yeah. Yeah, hugely glad. Yeah, I wouldn't have missed that for anything. Didn't think it would come, either. Really? Yeah. No, I thought I was combo, and I thought my... I just couldn't imagine how... I couldn't imagine the sort of process of getting to know you and all that sort of thing. And I was busy, and I didn't really have time for another person. And, well, David was having none of that, so he just kind of steamed in and kind of targeted me with his affection and love, and I kind of, in the end, gave in.
0: Did he ever say what it was about you that was attractive?
1: He said I was the poor man Stephen Fry.
0: (laughs) I think I would agree (laughs) with that.
1: David had been in poor health, as they say, for a long time, actually. And uh, so much so that occasionally he would have to go to hospital because he had various things go wrong with his insides that needed uh, to be fixed. Occasionally he needed a blood transfusion. So going to a hospital with David, in fact, going to A&E with David, was not unusual. That was just a thing that happened. And then um, I had been in London and I got back and he was, he had been spitting blood. And uh, I said, that's not great. And he said, no. And I said, I'll take you to hospital. And he said, I'm not going to hospital. And I said, don't be daft. He said, look, David had been an A&E nurse for years so he kind of knew how hospitals worked and he thought that he would go and he would just lie on a trolley all night until he saw a specialist in the morning. So in the morning I got up and he was bringing up much more blood. So I said, look, I'm gonna phone an ambulance. And he said, yeah, I think you should, which was unlike him because he wasn't a drama queen. And then they picked him up and carted him off to Kettering General, checked in, and they said, oh, we can go wait in there. So I waited in this room where there were actually some people I knew and talked <coughs> to them. And then the doctor came and said, we need to see you. And I went into a bay and David was, was there and it was uh, kind of blood everywhere. And they just thrust this consent form into my hand and said, we need to take him to theater right away. And then they started saying what the risks were and I just couldn't hear it. So I went, ha, 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 so I made a joke about it. And then David said, he doesn't understand, just leave us alone for a minute. So they all left. And then he sort of told me what was happening was that he was gonna to have to have an operation and that he might not survive the operation. And, uh, and I couldn't believe it. And he said, he said all the things that you need to say in those situations. And then they whisked him away. And I was standing there with this bloodstained form in my hand, kind of reeling. I walked out of the couch, and there were some people there recognised me, and they came over and said, Oh, it's the Rev. Can we have a selfie? And I went, Yeah. So I literally, was standing there with this bloodstained document in my hand, going, You know, people took pictures because I just couldn't. I was in shock, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Went up to ICU, um, phoned his mum, said he should come down. So she and his dad, Vinny, started driving down from uh, Preston and his brother, Mark. And then um, I was talking to this family, a really nice family At of those, a grandson who was in with respiratory problems, and they were great, and I talked to them, and we actually I quite laugh. And then um, this just solemn procession of medics came in and they said, well, could we have a word? Mm. And you think, oh, this isn't going to be good. And they said that they couldn't operate and there was nothing they could do. And then they went blah, blah blah blah, and I said, well, you know, you know, he must be able to do something. And they said, the only thing we can do is just make him comfortable. And he's on ventilation. And then we'll, when you're ready, we'll remove the ventilation. He might very well die then. And I thought, I can't believe that. I couldn't believe it, you know. Yeah. And then I said, in my usual Boy Scouty kind of way, I think I said something like, "What's the best medical opinion you have, or something like?" that? You know, trying try to get a grip on it. And they said just what they'd said. So I had to phone his mum to say that he wasn't going to make it and that I wanted them to hurry, but they were on the M6, you know. Mm. That was awful. And then they arrived and his brother Mark arrived and his brother Andy arrived and my brother arrived and everyone arrived. And then um, they withdrew the ventilation and we sat there and waited for David to die. And four days later, he actually did. So we had this four-day-long kind of deathbed vigil with him which I was sort of glad of in a way because I didn't want to lose him and he was in and out of kind of consciousness and acidity, he was on morphine Was he able to speak? Yeah, yeah and he still knew who he were sometimes he thought he'd had an arm transplant and he kept waving his arms around and looking at them and saying he hadn't got used to his new arms yet, so he was kind of Mm. hallucinating a bit but it meant that people had a chance to come and say goodbye to him And the bishop came and anointed him. And then, of course, as always happens, it became a long haul. And so I went home, I came back here. Someone was looking after the dogs, but I needed to see the dogs, and I needed to have a shower, and I needed a change of clothes and stuff. And it was while I was here, he actually died. Well, are you sorry you missed that moment? no. It often happens, you know. So if you ever do deathbeds, you'll find that people often die when everyone goes. It's actually, I think, it's like falling asleep. You need a bit of peace and quiet. That's what happens. And and I, by then, I kind of wanted him to just slip away, and he did. And then, you're mad. Actually, were you mad? Completely mad. As in
0: just being not not angry, but just being bonkers, right. if you like yeah. bonkers.
1: And of course, you're incredible. We'd been so tired; we'd been up for days, and we'd barely slept, we'd barely eaten. So you are, you know, crazy. I went to the co op to do some shopping bread and milk essentials, and I bought three kinds of parmesan. I tried to buy peacock a bit later that day. Mad, an actual peacock. Yeah, I just thought fancy peacock. And then I thought maybe an owl. It's easier to buy a peacock than an owl I've discovered. But in the end, um, wise counsel prevailed and I had neither a peacock nor an owl. <laughs> but it was it's mad, JP. You go Yeah. I don't yeah. know how much you if you've ever been through this yourself or... uh, my grandmother I
0: remember I remember watching my grandmother dying. Yeah. She had throat cancer and she was very, very young. She was only fifty five when she died. Wow. And it just in dreadful pain for the last few months of her life. And I remember I was only about fourteen, but Uncle saying, "Right, she's uh, she's about to pass on," and the whole family gathered round the bed in that
1: traditional way,
0: in that really traditional way, and all all Did saying the
1: rosary. Catholics are really good uh, for the people. I yeah. found some people are, are good in these situations, and some people aren't so good in these situations. And the ones I found really good, the the ones who were best were Catholics and Toffs.
0: Yeah, I I do think the Catholics I, are really I think good. the Irish Catholic way is quite good. It's. Uh, the three days of the week and then the you know the burial, whereas uh, well, I know when it came to England it's like two or three weeks from
1: someone dies to well we've a burial and people go to work and yeah but the kind of English the English way is to make it a sort of a kind of item for, of bureaucracy you know, mm. because we don't like feeling emotion we find that through cliches but the kind of traditional British buttoned up sort of way of doing things is to be alarmed by emotion and part of that's in me of course I get it. Um, and also we export death out of our daily experience. So we medicalise it and it happens in hospitals. And in the old days when you would have died at home, the old days when one of your, two or three of your 12 brothers and sisters would have died in infancy, mm. they're, they're distant from our imagination. Yeah. But I think in, our, in traditional cultures, particularly in Catholic cultures, people are, just, they just get it better.
0: But of course death is part of your working life yeah. very much as well.
1: Yeah, but that's different because then I'm, I'm a service provider. I know what I'm doing and often I'm burying people I know and sometimes burying people I've come to love in my parish. But I have a job to do and I do my job. Right. One of the things you realise your job is like an undertaker is to get people through. But it wasn't like that with David. I needed to be to mourn. I needed to grieve. I needed to be given the, the kind of space and room that you need to when something like that happens. How was the funeral
0: for you then? An ordeal. You looked very, very tired. Not surprisingly.
1: It was an ordeal. You put your loved person into a hole in the ground, and that's not easy not meant to be and although you know i'm a christian and i absolutely believe that this is not all there is and that david has gone forward into something which i hope to go forward into too and it's not the end of the story but actually i just wanted to walk in the room you know i just want to hear the sound of his badly parked car in the drive just that little stuff you know the kind of the Mm. grain of, of a life with someone and instead he's kind of under this pile of earth in a English country churchyard.
0: Do you think about that a lot about where he
1: is now? Yeah, I do actually. I never use euphemisms like passed away because I think it's really important that we know what's happened. That's my view. That's interesting because I like the term pass away. Yeah, I do. You don't like. You don't
0: like brutal. Yeah, uh, that's probably true. Yeah, I, d- <laughs> I just like the. I mean, I don't like brutal. I mean, anything, yeah. but, but I think you're a very
1: sensitive person, JP.
0: I just like the term. I would always use pass away or yeah. pass on. Yeah. Uh, but I know lots of people disagree with that.
1: But I do think we do make a mistake when we don't acknowledge the reality of what's happened, and that is that someone has gone, because you need to know, you know and you will it's discover
0: it. Does the vicarage feel different?
1: Oh, yeah, really, totally different.
0: Does it feel lonely?
1: Yeah, it does. There is something about, you know, being in your pyjamas in front of a fire. we have fed the dogs and had your supper and it's ten past six. That's yeah. really tough. Yeah. Uh, and people are really kind and I know that if I, if I wanted to, I could easily just go see someone or they'd come see me. But, you know, you are now a widow. And it's different. It really is
0: when you're sitting in here of an evening, that's, I suppose, when it hits you most.
1: Or are there particular yeah, times? Hotels are the worst. Hotels? Yeah, being in a hotel on my own. I did a lot of that when David was alive because of the you know, nature of my job. Yeah. or um, well, nature of one of my jobs. But actually, when I was in a hotel, I always used to phone David and we'd just talk on the phone and have a proper talk, you know, it was a habit. And whenever I'm in a hotel on my own now, Occasionally I pick up the phone to phone him because of muscle memory, you know, and he's not there mm-hmm. to phone. That's really, really tough. It's really bleak. And there is just a horrible, bleak reality about it, which there's no reducing it, there's no dodging it, there's no glossing it. People mm. say, oh, I've got, he's up there looking down you, da-da-da-da, and I don't feel that at all. I just feel that he's gone, and I you know, wish he hadn't.
0: It's been, what, about three months now, Richard? Yeah. Since David's passing, as I use the expression. Yeah, um, how different are things now to they were, say, a month ago?
1: Um, I'm less grief-stricken, or grief-stricken less frequently. It tends to be waves, so you're kind of all right, and then all of a sudden, and sometimes very unexpectedly, something will come and kind of get you, and you're hopeless for a bit. Because at first you just can't get that they They've gone. You know that they're dead. But you expect them to, you know, just turn up. They've like been on some weird, unauthorised holiday. Mm-hmm. And after three months, you begin to get a new kind of knowledge. There's something about it that's just a bit sort of uh, settled. And that is, I think, funny enough, I think of lettering on a headstone. You start it becoming lettering on a headstone, and you realise that this person is not coming back. And the moments of realisation can be very, very difficult because... It's it's just, you just feel so alone. And I say his name out loud sometimes. And then the dogs look up because they think he's coming back with something. Yeah. After, you know. So the
0: dogs notice it as well.
1: Yeah, dog grief is a thing. They've both been... Well, because the, I suppose the pattern of their life has changed so much so quickly that they took a bit of getting used to that. Uh, Pong is clingier than he used to be. And Daisy is being funny with her food which is I mean she would she would kind of never be for a second hesitate to eat anything really but she does now and so we just have to kind of work that through really Um and they sort of I don't know I kind of hug them to me sometimes and we're like orphans from the storm you know mm-hmm. and it's they're dogs but I talk to them I try to explain to them that David has died like Odd, but, you know. Do you cry a lot? Not so much now. I did when he died. I've never really been uh, a ready crier, actually. Uh, I wish I was more. But when he died, I howled and howled, actually, and kept crying. And then I got this... There was, like, this kind of... This kind of tears. There was a new way of doing it. So the tears didn't kind of flow. Sometimes they did. But they sort of seeped out... Like kind of like melted cheese almost, and it was something almost kind of geological about it. there's something, some terrible kind of, I don't know, distillation of loss or something, was seeping out of rocks. It was a very odd feeling. And sometimes I'll do a thing that we did together that I'd forgotten about, and it'll just trigger a little memory of him that's lively, and then I get upset. Can you feel in yourself that it's
0: getting easier, uh, and do you expect it maybe to, to, you know, the periods when it's going to get worse again, or can you, see, you know, can you see the future of your grief,
1: if you like? I can't see the future at all. That's the odd thing because it was David, you see. So we had plans and we had a kind of idea about how our lives would go to the next stage and then how our lives would end. Um, and with him gone, that's all gone too. So I'm having to kind of building a future in my imagination that I can sort of see myself inhabiting. But it feels like your life's over. You know, I can really understand how, you know, in the old days when you were widowed at, I don't know, 49, you would put your shawl on sit in the corner knitting and quietly die. I can see how that might happen. Have but you
0: felt like doing that?
1: Yeah, I think so, a little bit. And it's partly it's because... I want to cherish his memory. You know? I don't want to. I don't want to do anything that would hurt it or diminish it. And there's this awful thing that happened when we had a vintage car, Morris Minor, one thousand cabriolet, soft top, monkey, lovely thing, and. Uh, I gave it to David's dad, who was, uh, who was started as a mechanic on Morris Miners, actually, and who rebuilt it when we got it, so it's gone to him, because I wanted him to have something of his son that was important. And uh, Mark, his brother, and his mate John Clarkey came down to take it away. And as it went off, I just felt this little feeling that there was a little bit of him that I would lose sight of, and that something of him would begin to fade. And I felt, no, 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 he must not fade, he must not fade. And then I went around the house and realised that I'd sort of kept pictures of him and portraits of him and stuff of his to hoard against the loss. And then I thought, no, I can't do that. So I've kept a couple of things. And the rest I've said to friends, come and help yourself take something that you would like as a memento of him. Because I'm not going to be Miss Havisham. No, it wouldn't suit you. And I was going to say he wouldn't like it, but I actually think he might like it. So there was a lot of distributing of his stuff and going through his stuff. And and then the, the sadmin you have to do, which is, you know, banks and credit card companies and insurance and car and that kind of mm. stuff. Just wading my way through that now. The thing I liked most was meeting the guy who's going to make our headstones. Who's this guy called Fergus Wessel, who is a...
0: Because you're going to be buried together.
1: And... Yeah, yeah, my plot is next to his and it was really nice going to order the gravestones because I know what's going on here. and then I thought well, it's not exactly a bog off but I thought well you know might as well get mine sorted while we're here and, uh, and I realised that mine is complete save two digits which is the 20 blank blank Yeah. the year of my extinction so David's is you know kind of full and everything we had to think about all of it but for mine it's simply just the addition of two digits and then I'm done Oh, what's this? This is my accordion. <laughs> One of my parishioners was played the accordion, and he died. And his widow, Joyce, she passed it on to me. So I, I've always wanted to play the accordion. She said, "Well, I have Brian." So she gave me Brian's, and I've been learning. And actually, now seems a good, good time to be kind of learning how to do such things. But
0: well, have you been playing a lot of the accordion since David's death? I've been lessons. Right. A man called
1: Janis in Thrapston. <laughs> uh, I go and see him I've a weekly lesson with him He's great And has this helped Do you think? Yeah in, in what way? It's something I can do
0: Do you know what I mean? Yes Yeah I do know what you mean Yeah <laughs> theological question what happens in your opinion to us after we die and has your view on that changed no
1: it hasn't I mean there are two answers to that one I can give you the official doctrine of the church but you know that I know that my Redeemer liveth and I know that David has gone into the mystery of God's eternity and I know that in that he will be forever good and fine and perfect and I know that there's a place for me there too, and the object of the rest of my life is to make myself fit for it. I suppose. I mean, that's such a big thing, isn't it? I can't say that that descends on me like a warm blanket when the cold wind of loss is blowing. It doesn't. I just feel the loss, but I know that, and that doesn't. Nothing in that has has changed at all.
0: So your belief in in God has has it made it
1: easier, maybe? Oh, no difference. I mean, I've always had a sort of steady state belief in God since when I started believing in God. And uh, I've never had the dark night of the soul that I sometimes think I should have, but I just haven't. I've never, for a moment, so much as stumbled in that. So that's unchanged. Um, What I tend to become more sceptical about is humans rather than God.
0: What about the uh, forgetting about the afterlife then for the moment? The short-term future for you, How how do you see that? You know, a year, five years down the line, you've still got your church career, your broadcasting career, but, you know, your domestic home life, how do you see that changing?
1: I've no idea. I know the dogs are in the last lap of their lives and that's going to be a necessary and very difficult thing. I know they're dogs, I know they're not human beings, but they are loved and you know, parts of your part of my life and David's life together. My mother is advancing in years, she has dementia, and her life expectancy is pretty short. So, that's another big change that's going to happen. Yeah. So, I don't know. I feel you know, I'm, I'm a Church of England priest, we're kind of about evensong, we're about the long shadow, the sun going down, getting ready for bed. That's what we do. But I think that's mood is widely abroad now. Maybe that's because I moved grief-stricken widow, I don't know. Or maybe I'm right about that, that there is this kind of sense of things coming to an end. But then of course, there's what lies beyond that. And I'd like to tune myself to the possibilities on the the other side of of loss and change. I just don't know what they are yet. The
0: last question I'll ask you then, Richard, is uh, what do you miss most about David?
1: He made me laugh so much, so I just miss him being funny. That's the sort of day-to-day thing. But I know what I'm going to miss overall is that he saved me from myself and my tendency for self-absorption and my self-regard and all that stuff. He kind of just wouldn't let me do that. He was different from me and he thought differently and he made me have to think differently and I had to change my life so that he could have the place he merited in it and uh, I'm going to miss that very much. up <laughs>